When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. This episode is another continuation of the Eliminated series. It is on the Golden State Warriors, and I have two guests that are together, so it's a three-man podcast, and those guests are Rusty Simmons, who is the beat writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, and Adam Wardson, who runs the uh, Golden State Warriors Fast Break blog on San Jose Mercury News. I've had both of them on the podcast before. I know both of them personally. It was a lot of fun. We talked for about an hour on basically every conceivable Warriors topic, from the differences potentially between Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr teams to off-season moves, the potential of a Kevin Love trade, and what having a new stadium and moving to San Francisco could mean for the franchise. So it was a blast to do, so much fun to talk Warriors with those guys, and I hope you like it too. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Sure thing. Thanks for having us. What's fun about the Warriors is that their structure is a little bit different, so I'm not. this isn't going to be the same format also because all three of us cover the team will be a little bit in, in format. But where I wanted to start, and we'll begin with Rusty, is the Warriors made the highest profile coaching change so far of the offseason. And I was wondering, from what you know so far, what you think will be different between the Jackson era and the Kerr era? Yeah, well, the, it, it's tough before you ever see him do anything, before you ever see him coach. But the two things that I'm, I'm certain will be different is Steve Kerr, when he was a general manager um, with Phoenix, used to go to all the business operations meetings. And, and that's not very common in the NBA, that, that the guy on the basketball side is also part of the business side. And uh, but I think he understands wanting to bring an entire organization together, um, and it sounds like he's going to do a lot of that stuff as coach, kind of do a lot of the CEO stuff where he is with the business team, also with the basketball ops team. Um, so I think that's one huge difference. As far as on-the-court stuff, um, we've heard him talk about ball movement and spacing and wanting to implement some of the triangle elements, um, and that's all great to say, but but until it actually happens, who really knows? Yeah, I think in – Along the same lines, it's really hard to guess what a rookie coach is going to do. I remember thinking back to when Mark Jackson was coming in. Uh, we didn't really have any clue what 
what was coming next uh, and how it was going to play out. But with Kerr, I think we're going to see some creativity. Uh, he came in with an idea of what he wants to do as coach. He had his famous portfolio that he had drawn up, his 40, 50 pages or whatever, of how he envisions the team from plays and rotations and other things. I feel like that the ownership has been pushing for somebody who's going to try to do more offensively with the team. And based on that, whether it's Kerr or the assistants that eventually get brought in, I think we're going to see uh, more creativity than just sort of isolations and three-point shots on the offensive side. One of the criticisms of Jackson was that, you know, that the offense didn't live up to its potential. And I was wondering whether you guys agree with that assessment and what you think they could do to improve that from where it was last year. Yeah, I I agree with the assessment. Look, they have some of the most talented offensive players on this team. And to not be putting up better numbers and efficiency – um, I think it's clear that, that something was wrong there. Um, and I think Adam hit it right on the head when he talked about the isolations and the one-on-ones and dropping it down to the block to guys who really couldn't score down there. When, when that's your offense, when you have the, the talented, versatile guys that they have, but your offense is left to, to one-on-one basketball and isolations, I think there's a huge problem. And one thing I loved about Mark Jackson is that he was stubborn, and if something worked, he would stick with it and he didn't care what anybody else said. Uh, but one thing I disliked about Jackson also was that he was stubborn, and if he thought it was right, he would stick with it. And I think that's what we saw last year was that he thought what he was doing was right, and he stuck with it and, and didn't have a, a creative way to get out of it. Yeah, I think the most damning statistic from this team last year was that they were the bottom of the NBA in touches per possession, uh, and that's really indicative of a team that's not moving the ball, that's not looking for uh, advantageous matchups, that is just going through the motions. Uh, you look at the examples of some of the guys who, who came in. Igudala was off offensively. Uh, Steve Blake saw his offensive production just plummet. Uh, even from sort of his first games towards later in the season, there was a dramatic fall off. And I think that there's some explanations in terms of health and uh, adapting to a new team that go into that. But a lot of it is just there were, was no effort to integrate those guys in a way to play to their strengths. Even guys like Curry, Thompson, Lee, I think there are ways that they can be used better. I think that's going to be part of Curry's challenge to try to figure out how to get the most out of those guys in the offense. What I fall back on is the idea that Jackson had a system, he had a way of playing basketball that he kind of saw as the way to play basketball. And there is a merit to that. I think that his system was better than some, but the problem is he had special talents. And when you have special talent you on either end of the court, you have to use that to its maximum. And I think that's one of the things that I think Kerr has a better sense of is how special a guy like Curry is. And there's also this weird thing that I remember Jackson talked about a lot, you know, like, oh, good players can just play together. And it was kind of this idea of, oh, they'll figure it out. And I feel like we've learned from Popovich and Spolster and everything else that while great players can figure it out, they can also be made better with more active, positive coaching. And I feel like that could be a massively helpful thing for this team. Yeah, you look at Kerr's NBA career, he's a testament to the power of the specialist in a a well-coached team. Kerr probably only could have played for five, maybe ten teams in the NBA because he had a limited skill set. But he had a really nice long career because he was put in a position to succeed with the skills that he had. The Warriors, fortunately, I think have a fairly well-rounded group of players. But again, like you said, they're people with special skills. 
and creating an offensive system that really plays to their strengths and hides their weaknesses is going to be important. Yeah, I think Adam hits on a key thing there that, that Kerr, with limited skills, figured out a way to, to stay in the league for as long as he did and showed some adaptability, even even with a limited skill set, found a way to fit in with several different teams. And I think that's what he wants to do as a coach is, is find the skills of his players and adapt his system to that. Um, and that's something that, that Mark Jackson didn't really do. And I always say that he, he had an ego and that he was stubborn, but he deserved to have an ego and to be stubborn. He never failed at anything in his life. He was a, a great player, a great announcer, and then a good coach. So I understand why he was stubborn and why he had an ego, but I think Kerr comes in from a, a different mindset where, where he wants to adapt to the people around them um, and build their confidence, build their egos. The guy that I've been thinking a lot about, obviously Curry is going to benefit from it, but I see a lot of potential improvement, particularly offensively with Klay Thompson, because what's so fascinating about him in terms of the popular perception versus what he does is that the possessions often stopped with him, and mostly that was because when he got it, he was open and he shot. But I feel like he can be so much more offensively as a creator and as a passer if it's kind of coached out of him. I feel like he kind of, he gets, he was comfortable with what he did and he was good at it. But I feel like that's a little bit of a problem when you're as young as he is and that he could benefit a lot from basically being asked to do more and maybe he'll stumble a little bit. But to really do that in the next in the coming years, not only next year. Yeah, I think if if Kerr puts in something that resembles the triangle or has elements of it, it's going to be a challenge for Thompson. Uh, He's a smart player, so I, I presume he's up for it. But instead of just being the terminating point of the ball movement, like you said, he's going to have to survey the field, figure out what the best play is, make a lot more decisions with the ball. And that's a change from what his role has been the entire time that he's been in the NBA. But I I agree. I think it'll make him a more effective player. I think it'll make him a more efficient player uh, and hopefully a more consistent one, which is really my issue with Thompson this last year offensively is that Uh, You live and die with that jump shot with Thompson right now until he drives consistently, until he gets a wider range of offense. And the Warriors' fortunes really sort of rose and fell with how he was playing. I think probably the the popular opinion or assessment of of Thompson is that, that he's kind of an aloof guy. But he, he really is a hoop head. He, if he's not at the gym working, he a lot of times is at home watching some game. Um, and he grew up around the game, loves the game. I think he'll pick up whatever Kerr is installing as far as the offense goes. And I think he's very coachable. We've seen him turn himself into a defensive player and start finishing at the rim better. It seems like every summer he's taken some coaching and made himself a little bit better. Uh, so I would think that, that he'll be excited about Kirk coming in and, and learning from him. And I think Danny's right when he says that, that uh, he can become a better facilitator. He, he did a little bit of initiating at Washington State, and I think because he knows the game um, and knows how important it is to share the ball and to get it moving, um, I think he'd be, he'd be really good with that. I like Rusty's point about Clay being a hoophead. I do think that there's a misconception on him. And what I was thinking of with that is that right before his second year at Media Day, it just how it goes is there are a bunch of different tables and people are talking. And I believe he was at the same time as Steph Curry. And so basically nobody was talking to Clay. So I went over and he and I talked for five to ten minutes about his game and basketball and all that. And what was shocking to me was what he was saying were the weaknesses in his own game that he wanted to work on were exactly the same as what I think everybody kind of understood. And we didn't see all of it that year, his second year. But to understand what your weaknesses are and to understand why that was important, he talked at length about 
getting to the line and how he'd watched a lot of James Harden and Kevin Durant and how he was seeing how they succeeded. And that level of activity and understanding the game and understanding where you fit in is a very important part of that. And I feel like that is a sign that he can do more if he's asked to do more. Exactly right. He added uh, dribble drive to his game. If he can add picking up some fouls there or distributing off the dribble drive, he would seemingly be unstoppable on offense. And and I think he understands that. I think he gets all that stuff. He, he was just in Istanbul, uh, Turkey, for uh, some camps, and he came away. What he was most impressed with was the fundamentals and the love of the game because I think those are things that, that speak to him. He, he really is into that stuff, and all he's doing is taking one week off to go fishing this summer because to him, he, he doesn't like vacation. He wants to be in the gym, and he's going to get right back in there. And, and I think I don't know that everybody thinks that way about Clay Thompson, but that, that's the player he is. Yeah, Rusty raises a good point, too, about just the sort of basketball intelligence of Thompson. And I think also the other Warriors players, it's a very smart team. And uh, fans sometimes don't always get a sense of that because players are so well conditioned uh, at this point not to really say anything in their press statements or in their postgame statements that you don't get a full look at how they're thinking about the game or how they're able to analyze what's going on. The Warriors have a group of players who have a really good understanding, I think, of what it takes to be a winning team. And with an innovative coach or somebody who has some creative ideas, it's going to be really fun to watch how they implement it. So that leads us pretty well potentially into the next question, which I'm calling the big question for this one, which is, and we'll start with Rusty, who do you think is the core of this Warriors team? And it can be as big or as small as you think is appropriate. Yeah, you know what? For so long, I think that they had their, all last year, I think they had their starting lineup, and and they, the Warriors, considered that their core, those five guys. But I don't think that's so much true anymore. I think David Lee has probably dropped out of that group. Andre Iguodala is is untradeable, but I'm not sure that that he is in that group. If if I'm looking at the Warriors from the outside, the core is Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, and Andrew Bogut. Yeah, I'd largely agree with that. I'd say that it's definitely Curry based upon talent, just being an elite player. Bogut based upon the difficulty of finding someone else who's going to do the things that he does. Uh, Even if he's not going to be an all-NBA player or an all-star, he's a great fit for this team uh, and a guy who you want when you're building a team to go deep into the playoffs. And that's probably where I draw the line. I like Thompson a lot. I like Iguodala a lot. They both bring a lot of things to the team, but for the right offer, you part with those guys. Same with Draymond. I know that there's some big Draymond fans here, uh, but I think for the right offer, he's still a role player, and you got to look at parting with him. It's funny that we went from three to two, and to me, the core is one. I think that it's just Steph Curry because I like a lot of the other pieces on this team, but I think that he's in a different level. And the other the other concept with it that's hard to figure out with this team is is the factor of age is that Curry, You could I, I think a Curry-Bogut, maybe Curry-Bogut-Clay core is there, but it's also interesting because I feel like Curry's going to be there regardless of what happens, and I think both of you brought the point, you know, it's that the other guys could be moved. I would be very surprised if Bogut was traded, and we'll talk about that in terms of Kevin Love, but it's when you're thinking, I, the, the Love situation has made it interesting for me to think about, you know, who... Who is untradeable, and then who is untradeable in combination? And I think that David Lee is not only out of my vision of the core, I feel like he's out of the teams, which is a huge step for this franchise, because I feel like if they had seen that a year or two ago, this team might look very different uh, in terms of, because they could have done something more with him than they could do now. But at the same time, 
I'm very fascinated to see what they think of Clay in that standpoint because if Clay is a key piece of it, and we've heard Steph say some very nice things about Clay, then that really changes what you're looking for for the rest of the team. And, it, and yeah, isn't it funny that, that none of us mention Harrison Barnes? <laughs> At this time last year, I think we were all praising him and thought that, that he was part of the future, and nobody even gives him a sniff in this conversation. Yeah, the uh, fates change quickly for players in the NBA, and I think Barnes is – uh, an example of someone who we may see later on this season return to being desirable, whether it's with the Warriors or with another team. But it's what have you done for me lately as David Lee is finding out with the, the current perception of, of his place on the team. Yeah, I think what have you done for me lately is a good way of a way of putting it. But I also think the concept of growing your game, and I feel like Harrison was in some ways hurt by being kind of narrowly positioned. Again, we talked about maximizing talent. I think you can make an argument that Harrison was hurt more by the lack of creativity in Golden State, just the overall kind of on-the-court philosophy last year, he was hurt more than anybody else because he got pigeonholed into that three spot when right now that's probably not the best spot for him. It might be eventually. And so then also that meant that he was competing for minutes with Andre Godala, who was obviously ahead of him in the pecking order, and then Draymond Green. And when you also, the other factor in this is that when you have a coach and this is oh, usually true, when you have a coach who's coaching for their job, you understand why they want to play the people that give them the best chance. And that was really interesting in terms of Jackson, because I think he liked Harrison, but at the same point, he understood that Draymond Green was playing much better than him last year. And it'll be fascinating to see how that works for Kerr, because he has the security of a long-term contract. But at the same point, to keep the players bought in and everything else, I think that they do need to have some success early. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge point. We always, in the media, always look at the, the NBA schedule as soon as it comes out and start planning our trips and see where we're going to be for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's and so on. But I'll be most interested to see the first 10, 15 games this year because I think the Warriors do have to win right away, have to have some success right away. I, I think the the players are, I think it's a good enough locker room that, that if they lose that they're not going to turn on Kerr. But winning would, would certainly keep them from questioning um, what he's doing and what the changes were that, that the Warriors made. Um, I think some early success would, would be really helpful. Um, and, Danny, when you, when you were talking about Harrison Barnes, you kept saying uh, he was hurt. He was hurt. He was hurt by the system. But I, I thought eventually you were just going to say he was hurt, which is something I think that, that uh, we've forgotten about a little bit is that he was never healthy last year. He came in with turf toe. And, and, you know, that's an injury. I remember Deion Sanders missing an entire season in, in football for, for that once. That's an injury that, that takes a lot out of you. So I don't think we saw him healthy at all last year uh, on top of, as Danny was talking about, playing a little bit out of position right now. Yeah, and back to the early performance of the team, I agree that Kerr's going to be under a microscope. But I think that the, the Nets are a good example this year of how you can have a rookie coach who comes in who struggles early even if he has smart players, veteran players. Uh, but then eventually things come together. You climb a little bit up the steep learning curve. Uh, and if you get a good playoff performance, or at least a, a decent playoff performance, you can silence a lot of your critics. Uh, there are not many people calling for kids' head as a coach right now based upon how the team performed at the end of the year. So I, I expect Kerr to struggle early. Uh, the team will see how much they win early. Uh, but I think the goal again next year really is going to be focused on getting home court advantage for the first round of the playoffs, getting into that top four, and then hopefully building a team to go deep. 
I think you bring up a good point, Adam, in terms of the, the Nets, but I think the big difference is the Western Conference versus the Eastern Conference, because we're looking at, obviously we don't know where everything's going to be, but we know that the Western Conference, at least one to six, is going to be very strong next year. It's probably going to be one to nine or one to ten. A lot of that depends on mi- what Minnesota does, what Phoenix does, and other teams, and health, of course. But I'm not sure that any Western Conference team, other than maybe the Spurs or Thunder, could stumble as badly as the Nets did and even make the playoffs. And as much as we've seen just kind of the urging maybe a patience, and I think Kerr did a good job of that in his press conference, the possibility of this team missing the playoffs just doesn't jive very well with what Lakeup has done his entire ownership tenure of keeping expectations high. Basically, whether or not there's support for it for what they actually have. Yeah, and I, I think the Warriors have more stability than the Nets. Uh, they have more talent than the Nets. So I, I don't think they're going to be at risk of missing the playoffs. But if they come out in the first third of the season and they're somewhere in the six or seven slot, people will be wringing their hands about whether Kerr is doing a good job coaching. Uh, and I think that that's got to be expected a little bit. It, the team's not going to reach its peak from the very start. So uh, I expect them to get better as the season goes on and as Kerr becomes more comfortable. The fans obviously are, are going to want wins right away, and, and there's going to be a lot of questioning on, on what what decisions the Warriors are making as far as their coaches go um, if the Warriors struggle. I'm interested to know what you guys think about, you know, all last year, Lakeup talked about uh, having home court advantage, being a top four seed, going into the playoffs. And as soon as Kerr came in, all the talk of how many wins they needed to get, uh, what their seed was going to be. Oh, he tried to get rid of all of that talk. Um, do you buy that, that ownership isn't looking at, at 51 wins, isn't looking at seeding going into next season? I think that ownership is going to give him probably a year. Uh, they're definitely going to want to see the team match or exceed the, the success of last year in terms of wins. But if they don't do that in the first year, I don't think – it will be the end of the world. Uh, he signed for a long-term contract. He, they understand he's a rookie coach. But this brings up another interesting topic, I think, which is the window for this team. While ownership may be willing to wait on Kerr a little bit, the players keep aging, contracts keep rolling. Uh, this team doesn't have a ton of time to develop before they need to be competing for a championship if that's going to be like Lakeup's goal. I think that's a really good point, and uh, I'll go to Rusty's first, and I think we can talk, we'll can we talk a little about window maybe a little bit later, though I, that is a huge point, and I do want to spend some time talking about it. And I think that th- there's a combination of factors. I think that maybe Lakeup understood a little bit how ridiculous it had been for a couple of years, and also that it wasn't particularly helpful. I think that it there was started to be this a little bit of a narrative, especially because Mark Jackson was so popular in the media of, oh, look, these guys seem unreasonable. And I think that he understands that that can hurt him. That didn't hurt them in getting Kerr, but they, they got him. But it might hurt them going forward. And I think also some of it is that you don't play the expectations game with somebody in the first year of a five-year contract. I mean, Cleveland kind of did that with, with Mike Brown. But it's just not smart because what happens if they fail? Are you going to fire them? You know, you, you can put stakes on somebody when they have actual stakes, but you can't put stakes on somebody if you don't have the ramifications. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up with you guys is obviously we don't know what he's going to do yet, but I think it'll be very interesting to see if Mark Jackson gets a head coaching job. I'm sure Warriors fans and the media alike, especially considering how popular he is, would go absolutely crazy if the team that he coaches 
does better than expected, especially if the Warriors do worse than expected. Obviously, you know, let's say it's the Cavs, let's say. Then, you know, if they start the season 7-3 and three because they're, they're going to be better than they were last year and the Warriors are 5-5, five and five, whether or not that affects the team or not, I'm sure that would become a little bit infuriating for the PR staff and for ownership to have to deal with if it actually does happen. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that, but a lot of it will rest on what the expectations are. My guess is if Jackson gets a job, it's going for it's going to be for a team that has struggled a lot in the past and he's going to be asked to rebuild the team, uh establish confidence, get everybody playing on the same page. Those are the things that he's really really good at. So I would expect him to succeed on that. Uh Kerr's challenge with the Warriors and the challenge of whoever bring, Kerr brings in as an assistant coach uh is going to be to get them not just playing on the same page and sort of doing the basic things of a team, but really elevating to the next level. Uh, and that takes time, and it takes a lot of focus and trial and error. So I would expect him to have a more difficult time with that task than Jackson would resurrecting a franchise that's been down in the lottery for a few years. Well, I want to I want to be around to to cover uh, Jackson's next job. Uh, that just sounds like a, a fun story of of back and forth that w- that would continue with this. But I really don't think it's it's going to happen that he's going to coach again. He has two young boys still in the L.A. area, so I think there's really only two jobs that he would take. That that being with the Clippers or the Lakers. And you know what? I'm not I'm not convinced that he loved coaching. I think he loves being around the game. I know he loves being a, a pastor of a church in in Southern California, and I know he he loved the camaraderie. But I'm not convinced that he loved coaching. That that he wanted to be there all the time. They they didn't practice a ton. Uh, they didn't watch much film. I'm not convinced that he wants to do it again. Yeah, I think that's a really good point by Rusty. That there was a lot of criticism about Jackson not being one of these guys burning the midnight oil to work on coaching, uh, and some of that could just be a question of it not being the right fit. That to do a job that that is that demanding and just pulls you away from the rest of your life, you really need to have a passion for it. And if he discovered that he didn't have a passion for it, then he's got to make the right choice for his life. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think that we've also we've seen some of what the effects can be of, you know, having that lack of attention. And maybe that will be a a thing in terms of him waiting longer for a job. Maybe he'll realize that he missed it more than he thought he would. And that would be a very interesting thing. But, yeah, I, I would be surprised if he took a job right now. But at the same point. If he thinks that he wants to do it, striking while the iron is hot for the right position might not be a bad idea. I expect to see his name floated for a lot of places just because it's in his interest to keep his name out there and to keep showing that there's demand for him to be a coach. So I think he's been associated with Cleveland here in the last day or two. And that's the type of thing where I expect we'll hear his name. Maybe he does an interview, but I don't see him taking that job. Yeah, and the other thing that, that he's already got is a stage. Uh, I mean, he's he's ESPN, ABC's main color guy. So he's going to stay in the game. He's going to stay relevant. I don't even think he has to be one of those guys where his agent is, is constantly floating his name for head coaching jobs. The Van Gundy, you know, Jeff Van Gundy was in every, is in every coaching search um, because he's relevant, because he's on TV, and that's what people pay attention to. So Jackson has that going for him. I think he can be away from the game. I mean, as far as not coaching for a while and stay relevant, stay in those conversations about future searches. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely there. We'll move on to one of the big possibilities. Obviously, we don't know necessarily how likely it is, but that's Kevin Love. And we'll talk, I want to do this in two questions. I'll tell you the second one now. The second one would be what you would consider a fair thing for the Warriors to give up for him. Where I want to start is just your general opinion on a potential fit and whether it makes sense and just kind of how you're seeing that situation playing out. And we'll start with Rusty. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a good fit. I mean, um one of the the few detailed things that Steve Kerr told us in his his initial press conference was that he wanted us to a stretch four. Um and we've seen the Warriors forever struggle to find easy buckets on the block. I think those are two things that that Kevin Love could take care of for them. So I think it makes a ton of sense there and and defensively, we all know that that he's a liability, but I think Andrew Bogut covered for David Lee pretty well, so I think he would do the same thing for Kevin Love. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think he's a great fit. Really, the only question for me is what's the cost going to be, which gets to your second question. But if he's out there, I think you have to try to put a package together for him. I I agree with all that. I think that the other factor that's interesting is that he fits in a lot of ways like David Lee did. He's just a better player. And the other part of it that I think people lose track of a little bit with him is that he's very good now, but he's on the upside of his career, whereas David Lee is Presumably, I mean, obviously he could have some resurgence, but generally when you're past your prime every year, you would expect every year to be a little bit worse than the last one. And so that is a huge benefit because so the margin between Love and, and Lee should probably grow with time as opposed to dissipating and making them closer. And the contract sizes aren't that different because Lee is heavily paid and Love is a max player. But we'll move on to the, what the packages and Adam, since you already started bringing it up, I was wondering what you think because we the minimum packages I don't think we need to think about but it's kind of what are you thinking would be on the larger side of what if you were the Warriors general manager if you were Bob Myers you would feel comfortable giving up for him Lee definitely included Uh, I think Barnes given his place on the team right now you have no real hesitation including him Uh, you try to shake out some pick or combination of picks to sweeten the deal since Minnesota probably is going to want to add some young talent to whatever we send over. There'll be competing offers that can offer them a lot of young talent. The real question for me is whether you include Thompson in that deal, whether replacing Barnes or in addition to Barnes. And that's a question both about how good you think Clay Thompson is going to be, but also how important you think it is to pair Clay Thompson with Steph Curry in the Warriors' backcourt. Uh, And it's that second question that I think is a more difficult one because there are lots of good two guards in the NBA. There are even quite a few good offensive and defensive two guards. But Clay and Steph really have some chemistry together and they fit well together. And so the hardest part for me in considering the love trade is whether I'd be willing to break up that backcourt in addition to trading uh, my power forward and maybe a young prospect or a pick. Uh, to bring in love. That's the really tough call. That's where the rubber hits the road for me. Yeah, and I don't I don't think the Warriors can include Klay Thompson. Uh, and there there's a ton of reasons why I, I think they should keep him because of his fit and how complimentary he is to Stephen Curry and how good I think he's gonna be. But none of that matters. What matters is that Stephen Curry wants him wants him to be in the same locker room, in the same backcourt with him. And I don't think twice in a row you can go against what your the face of your franchise says. I don't think you can fire his coach and then get rid of his backcourt mate. I just think that's the, the wrong thing to do. I think they've got to give Stephen Curry a voice. Uh, they've heard it now, uh, and I think they have to go with him this time. I don't think they can go against him twice in a row like that. 
So if your package is David Lee, Harrison Barnes, um, and, a, and a draft pick, that doesn't look as good as some other teams can offer. But players have so much control. And if, I can't imagine a team trading for him without a guarantee that he's going to re-up. So if Kevin Love comes to the Timberwolves brass and says, I will only re-sign with the Warriors or Chicago, that gives the Warriors a much better chance, even if they don't have the best package to trade. Yeah, and the idea of leverage could help the Warriors. The other guy that is going to be a really challenging piece in terms of this whole thing is Festus Azili because the Wolves have two centers already. They have Pekovic, they have Jang, and they apparently like both of them. But Festus is a really nice asset because even if the Wolves don't want him, he's a quality backup center who's incredibly young and incredibly cheap. Would you guys be comfortable including him, especially if you're not going to put Clay in? And then the other guy like that is Draymond. So basically, how willing to trade those guys in a Kevin Love deal would you guys be? I really like both those players, and I would trade them in an instant for Kevin Love. I'd have more hesitation over Green just because he's further along at this point uh, than Festus. But I think if you have the chance to get a second all-NBA, all-star quality player like Love to pair with Curry and you don't have to give Thompson up to the other team to do it, you jump at that opportunity. I would have started the exact same way that, that Adam did. I love both of those players, and I would trade both of them in a heartbeat for Kevin Love. You always trade four quarters for a dollar. And Draymond Green is definitely somebody that, that is coveted around the league. And, and Festus Azili used to be that way, too. My only fear with trading him right now is this is the lowest that his trade stock could ever be. Uh, he, he can hardly walk, let alone play basketball right now. So I, I think it would be the wrong time to trade him. If you can keep that asset and, and use that somewhere else down the line, I think that's what you want to do. Yeah, and that's the other factor in this, and there are a lot of ways to think about it, but a lot of the Warriors' assets, I would say Clay Thompson isn't there, but a lot of the other assets are probably close to their low point in terms of value. I would say Harrison Barnes is clearly at his lowest point as a pro. I would say Festus is there. Draymond isn't, obviously, but I don't know how willing they are to trade him. But that also brings up the question of whether it would be possible in some ways, if it, if Kevin Love's thing lingers all the way to the trade deadline, if possibly some of the Warriors' assets are even more desirable at that point than they are right now. Yeah, I think that's possible. I would be more reluctant for the Warriors to blow up the team in terms of trading Thompson at the trade deadline just because you would have gone deeper into the season. I think if you're going to make that type of radical move, you need to do that now. But if you're able to, like Rusty said, put four quarters together and get a dollar, uh, yeah, jump at the trade deadline to do that. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting to see how Minnesota plays it. They don't have to make this this deal on draft day. You know, they, they they don't have to do it in the middle of free agency. They very well can play hardball and say, we're going to keep pushing it, we're going to keep pushing it. They keep going back and forth saying they're they're going to keep them. They have no intention of trading them. And then they go and say, we're, we're listening. Um, and, and I think they're just trying to get the best offer possible. And, and I guess they have the leverage. They don't have to do anything. They, they can try to keep them and, and then try to re-sign them. Yeah, I think the big decision they need to make is whether they want to do a complete rebuild or whether they actually want to try to get quality talent in return. Because if you're going to do a complete rebuild, you should start that as soon as possible. Just trade them to Boston, get as many draft picks as you can, and start over. But if you are actually looking for talent in return, then you probably run it uh, to the trade deadline and see if you can draw more out of people uh, to get in at that point. Yeah, and wonder if at the trade deadline they're still in the playoff hunt. 
and, and then Kevin Love's not so anxious to get out of there, you know. So I think there's there's a lot that, that can be said for, for waiting, but I think they're going to take a ton of calls on draft night. Yeah, I, I think that you, you both raised good points, and I think the other factor in it, and this is something that we can't know but they might know, is whether Love has been unequivocal in saying he won't come back. Because to me, it's again we're talking about the idea of four quarters for dollar. You don't lose a dollar unless you have to. And if there, if if Love hasn't said I'm gone, then I think you have to do everything you can to keep him. And that doesn't necessarily mean hey, let's sign a bunch of guys to too much money like they did last summer. But that means keeping him around and seeing if you know maybe what if they're in the sixth spot near the trade deadline and he goes oh you know this isn't that bad and maybe some of the other teams have missteps. But at the same point, if he is going to be gone, then you can't because in the current CBA. It's not like last time where at least Cleveland, as bad as this is, they got too late first-rounders from Miami. If Love is going to leave, he's going to leave, and they're going to get literally nothing like the Lakers did for Dwight. So that is a factor in it. But it's a really complicated circumstance, and I sincerely hope that the Warriors don't have to deal with that in a couple years' hurry because it's a clearly unenviable position to be in. Yeah, to get back to Rusty's point on Curry, I'm glad that we've locked him up for the next uh, three years because I think that his comfort with the team next year could be potentially a rocky issue. And that's not saying that he's going to be a malcontent or anything. It's just he lost a coach that he really liked. There are going to be trade rumors potentially surrounding around his friends on the team, uh, or maybe they will even be traded before the season starts. So it's not going to be the, the comfortable, secure place that it was last year for Curry necessarily. He's going to have to adapt to some changes, uh, but it's good that they have some more years for him to get a lot of wins under his belt and hopefully deep runs into the playoffs that will make him very happy here for years to come. Yeah, I think that's right on Curry. I don't think he has it in him to be a bad guy or to be a stain in the locker room. I think he's going he's gonna to be good for the franchise. He's going to keep doing his community service. He's going to play hard uh, regardless of what they do. But I think you do have to be really careful with, with your superstars, with your egos. Um, if you continue to ask for his opinion as a front office and then continue to go against what he wants, uh, I think that's a really dangerous thing to keep doing. So we'll move on to just generally about the off season. And what I was wondering is anybody that is on a different team that you have been watching and you go, hey, I think that guy would be a very good fit with what they're doing. And we'll, I'm, I don't think that other than Kevin Love, that's really going to be star players. So it's more, you know, in the mid-level exception or cheaper range guys that, that you think would be a good fit with this team, assuming they do more smaller changes as opposed to something wholesale. The big priority for me, I think, is one, same as last season, figuring out who your backup point guard is going to be, and two, trying to get someone to be an athletic backup four or an athletic starting four if you can find one. So there are people around the league who I think could potentially fill the backup point guard spot. Finding a quality four is going to be a more difficult task and is probably going to take all of your mid-level to do it uh, to get someone who's going to contribute above sort of a spades level. So it's going to be slim pickings, I would guess, but those would be my two targets and priorities uh, during the offseason. Yeah, those are those are absolutely the, the two I would hit on. The third one, to me, would be who your backup center is going to be. Do you think Jermaine O'Neal has another year in him? Can you talk him into coming back for another season? Do you think Festus Azili is going to be healthy? 
Uh, do you think Kuzmich is, is ready to, to play 10 or 15 minutes a night? I'm not sure we can answer any of those questions right now. So I think the Warriors have a, have a decision to make it back up center. And those guys are sometimes harder to find. Uh, a guy who, who can actually do something for you, protect the rim and rebound for you with that second unit. So, so I think that's one they have to think about too. Um, and the backup point guard, it seems like uh, – it seems like it's easy to find because they're all over the place, but the Warriors couldn't find one last year. So um, I think that'll be an interesting one to watch this summer. Yeah, I agree with you guys on the priorities. And the other thing that makes the Warriors situation a little bit different for a backup point guard is the possibility, though I wouldn't say it's a requirement, of getting somebody who can also play with Curry. Because a lot of teams, when you're looking for a backup point guard, you're looking for somebody who can run the offense for 10 to 15 minutes a game, and then if your starter gets hurt, can move into that role, pretty much playing the way they play and expanding. And the Warriors would ideally like to have somebody who can play on and off the ball so that they can play complement Curry, which is a role that would intrigue some people, but it also makes it much harder to find somebody who is a perfect fit as opposed to somebody who's a who's an all-right fit. Yeah, you look at yeah, someone like Sean Livingston, uh, who you know has the size to play next to Curry, uh, has point guard skills, but he's going to be in high demand. You, know, you look at somebody who's that versatile, they're probably going to want a starting job. Uh, and to be able to command that type of money uh, around the league. So it's going to be tough. I think that's exactly right. I think on top of being able to, to play the one and two on, on offense, I think you have to have a guy who can guard those two positions to play with Curry. Um, so he does have to be a bigger guy. And there's only there's only one Livingston, only one guy who's that tall playing the position. But there are some strong point guards out there, some bigger body point guards. I, I think of a guy like Rodney Stuckey, who, who you know can, can fight and battle and defend ones and twos. Um, so I think a guy like that might be somebody they would look at. Um, but a ton of this uh, depends on what Kerr wants to do, too. Um, we don't know exactly what his system is and, and what kind of point guard he'll need for that. Yeah, you can look at a guy like Sessions, too, who uh, I know the Warriors have liked in the past and been interested in. Uh, he's somebody who uh, you can bring in just to kind of hold down the fort when Curry's not in and gives you a bit of versatility, sort of like what they wanted from Steve Blake, I think, and never really got fully. But if Kerr wants somebody with a more specific skill set, then you're getting into the range of players who are going to be more expensive, potentially eating up your entire mid-level. And again, that also goes into the idea of a backup center, because depending on what quality backup center you want, those guys can get expensive too, especially since the Warriors, at least at present, don't have a first-round pick. And you probably wouldn't want a first-round pick, especially a low first-round pick, to be Andrew Bogut's backup or to be even the third guy, because we know that those guys will end up playing a lot. And so if you have to spend money on both of those things, and those are both people that are in high demand because of their unusual combination of abilities, they might have to make some tough choices, which is not what you want to hear when you're getting the last pieces of what should be a very good team. And that's why I think the the summer, this sounds like a, a, a boring summer league team for the Warriors this year. Instead of having four or five guys that, that you want to see that they're sending down there, they only have a couple. Um, but I think what Nedovich does, his development, um, and what Kuzmich does down there are, are really important for the Warriors going forward because then they can make a decision about what kind of point guard, what kind of backup center they need um, just based on what those two guys are doing and, and how the franchise views them. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun media event because with Kerr saying that he's actually going to coach the summer league team, uh, everybody's going to be reading tea leaves as to what type of coaching style he's going to have, what he's going to want guys to do. 
and he's going to be doing it with a bunch of spare parts, uh, 90% of which won't be on the roster come the regular season. So it's going to be fun to watch that and all the speculation that's going to swirl around it. And oftentimes in the summer league, they're not even running their system. They're essentially just highlighting one player that day and, and trying to work on, on it. So if, if they go down there and, and run a bunch of pick and rolls or isolations for Netovich, um, I can just imagine the, the fans groaning and saying, here we go again. we got no creativity on offense. But um, I don't think that will speak to what Curry's going to do. I think the more important thing to do down there is to try to develop Kuzmich and Netovich and, and, and not implement your system with a bunch of guys who aren't going to be around. Yeah, and I think that they've done a good job with that with the Santa Cruz team. Obviously, the, the competition level is lower at, at the developmental league level, but sending you know a young guy down there and really highlighting him in the offense or in the entire flow of the team, it's a good opportunity to see what someone can do to build his confidence. Yeah, and the other part of it that you guys brought up, which is really fascinating about Kerr and Summer League, is that there are so few guys that we would expect to play on the Warriors Summer League team and also play or even be a part of their other team. So the question is not only how much will we learn, but how many spots are there for, are those guys actually playing for? And obviously some of that could change with trades and everything else like that, but it will be just interesting to see what it's like to see a Warriors-esque team with basically no Warriors on it. Well, don't we you can always get Anthony Randolph the... back to uh, highlight the <laughs> Summer League team. We could create all-stars of Summer League past to, to bring back the good feelings for the fans. Randolph and, and Bellinelli and Moro, they could, yeah, they could, they could have an all-star team of Summer Leaguers there. But I assume that this year's Summer League team will, will essentially be the, the Santa Cruz roster. The Warriors, the, the big club, just had a, a workout, draft workout with six guys who have no prayer of being drafted. Um, and the guys who did the workout were all the Santa Cruz coaches. So um, I think that's what they're looking at right now. They're looking for, for guys who aren't going to get drafted for free agents that they can sign to that summer league team. And essentially they'll be trying out for Santa Cruz. I don't think they'll be trying out for Golden State. That's a good point. And that's definitely something that those guys can be playing for. And I think that the expansion of importance of the D-League has been a, a really positive thing because you, you see that as something to consider and Teams like the Warriors have done a good job developing it. Uh, but we'll move on to what the, the question I've been asking everybody, and I think the Warriors might be the most interesting team that I've dealt with this yet, is the concept that I've used for years is called the timetable of contention. And what I like to think of that as is whatever you see the team's peak as, how close are they to it? And in the Warriors' case, if they're there now, which you might think or you might not think, how long are they going to be there? And it's basically how long of a time frame are we working with here? And we'll start with Adam. I think the peak is probably 15-16, and I think that they're entering a three-year window right now where they really have to make the most of the talent that's on the roster. I look at a couple different things. The first is Curry's contract, which ends at the end of the 16-17 season. You really need to make use of what has turned into an amazingly cheap deal that you have Curry on to try to package as much talent around him. Iguodala and Bogut uh, have contracts for the same period. They also have talent that is probably peaking right now, and then will start on the downslope. David Lee, if he's still part of this team, I think is already on the downslope. He's 31 years old, and that will probably accelerate. So that's going to be a factor in your window closing. Thompson, though, is improving, and I think in a year or two, Thompson will be right in the sweet spot for who he's going to be as a player. So I've really kind of circled not next season, but the season after is when the Warriors – should really focus on making that run. And hopefully if Bogut's body holds out, uh, you get another shot in the 2016-17 season 
to really uh, be a contender. But next year is going to be a building season. Uh, it's going to be a season where Kerr needs to get his legs under him and where hopefully they can add a few more pieces that are going to be part of the contending teams in the years to come. Yeah, I think it would make uh, for a more fun show if I would disagree with Adam, but I can't help it if he's just right all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. This year um, is about Kerr becoming a coach, implementing and stuff, and the, and the players learning how to work within that system. And I think next year, next season, is, is when they really have to make a push, and they probably only have that year and the one after to really be at their, their highest level with, with the way this group is, is currently put together. And then the Warriors have a, a, a ton of big decisions to make after that. So I think 15-16, 16-17 are, are huge years, peak years for them, um, and then the franchise has to decide where it's going after that. The other thing that hopefully will lead to a little bit more disagreement uh, is, so we're in a situation now where, theoretically, if they want to, Clay Thompson is eligible for an extension. And I've had a lot of trouble calibrating not only where he would be valued, but in some ways where I would value him. So the question is, would you extend him now? And, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, definitely or anything like that. And also, what do you think, if you were signing him to something right now, would be a fair value for him? Rusty, do you have an idea on that? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think the, the Warriors are, are certainly going to extend him. And it'll be interesting. Uh, Bob Myers has a great relationship with, with Thompson's agent, Bill Duffy. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they get it done right away. As Lakeup says, unequivocally, they will re-sign him, will extend him. So it'll be interesting to see if they get it done right away or if they push it right up to the regular season opener. They haven't filled the night before to close out an extension. Uh, I think they will do it, and I think that's the right move. And I agree with you. I think it's really hard to figure out what his price tag is going to be. I'll be interested to see what, what Gordon Hayward ends up getting this offseason. Um, he wanted to get a max and, and couldn't, but maybe somebody else will. I, I think that's about <laughs> – I think with Mark Jackson talking up Clay Thompson as, as the best two-way shooting guard in the league, I, I think the, the Warriors actually do view him that way, and I think – Somewhere probably about twelve to thirteen million dollars a year is what he's going to get. Yeah, you tried to throw out a topic where Rusty and I would disagree, but I'm afraid you haven't found it yet. We're going to be boring. I think that they absolutely extend him because he's at a spot where there's still questions about his game, and so maybe you get a little bit of discount because of those questions. He could very end up, easily end up being an All Star next season, I think, uh, even in the tough West, uh, and that would just drive his value sky high. So you don't want to take that risk. I think that they probably aim for 12 as the sweet spot. Wouldn't shock me if they end up having to pay more than that. If they can get them under 12, I think they're getting a good deal given what players are getting paid right now in the NBA. So the other interesting thing there to me with, with the dollar amount is I, I wouldn't be surprised if Curry goes to Clay and says, look, I, I think you're a max player. Um, but just for us, don't do that. Uh, look, I, I, I know I had some injuries, but I, I took $11 million a year. And I know Bogut had some questions, but he took less than he would have gotten on the free agent market. For us, can you take 11 or 12 just so that we still have some money to sign some people going forward? Yeah, that's definitely a good point. The thing that I would say, and the disagreement might not come from you, it might actually come from me, is that if you're going to pay him in the 12 to 13 range, I feel like you might as well wait because – the idea behind paying somebody close to the max, because the, the max for a guy at, at, with less experience isn't super high. I think it's like 14 and a half or 15, is 
that the risk premium isn't really there. And I was heavily critical, not saying he's a similar player, of the Kings for maxing DeMarcus Cousins on the logic of why do it early. And because you're not in a situation where, let's say like Kevin Love or like anybody who's going to be an unrestricted free agent, where him being frustrated by that is going to cost him anything. And if you make it clear that, you know, we're committed to you, you know, we're, we're planning on having you, but we owe it to ourselves to do that. The other factor in it, and I'm not sure if, the, if that's actually telling in terms of the Warriors is, I wrote a little bit about this in a Kevin Love piece that's coming out, but the Warriors signing Clay Thompson to a lucrative extension now also means that there is no chance that they're going to have cap space in 2015, which is fine. You know, that's not the biggest downside in the world. It was going to be unlikely that they were going to do it anyway. But that completely basically closes the door on getting Kevin Love after this season. And so that changes the way that you think about the roster. And you can say that's worth it. You can say Clay's worth it. I think that's totally fine. But if I were the GM, if you can play this emotionally, and I know this is, again, hard with Steph, I would try to thread the needle and say, we really like you, but if we're going to do a deal, it needs to be below market value because otherwise we need to, we want to see how it plays out. Yeah. My concern with the economics of the NBA is I think we have seen the bottom of the salaries coming out of the last lockout and that they're only going to start getting bigger again because the luxury tax is rising. NBA is going to make a lot of money. So the salary cap is going to go up. And you're going to have a lot of teams that have been gutted and are looking to rebuild who I don't think would hesitate about throwing a max or near max contract at Clay Thompson. So I'd rather spend money now than roll the dice later because I think it's going to be a richer free agent market uh, in the years to come. Uh, and some of that, of course, depends upon who's going to be out on the market, whether guys opt out early from Miami and other things like that. But the NBA, despite what the owners may tell you, uh, has been doing very well economically and is going to continue to do so. And I think we're going to see another boom of big contracts. Yeah, and I think somebody is, is definitely going to be willing to, to pay Clay Thompson. Um, he'd, be a, he'd be a great fit to go to the Lakers after Kobe and go play in front of his dad every night and go back to his hometown and do all that. Uh, but there's a lot of teams that I think would, would – uh, would give him a lot of money, really close to the max, if not the max. And the danger in, in waiting is is a lot of times how hard that guy is going to play for you in the last season of the of the contract, and he'll sit out because of injuries because he knows he's playing for a new contract. That kind of stuff, I don't think you have to worry at all with uh, about Clay Thompson. So I, I agree a little bit there with you, Danny, that there's not as much pressure, not as much urgency to to get a deal done as as uh, as maybe some other players in the past. Are there any other Warriors topics that you guys would like to discuss with our listeners or discuss with the rest of the pan with the rest of us? I think the arena situation is interesting. I think that that's one of the changes in the background for the team. Given that they've now purchased a plot of land and that they don't have to jump through as many regulatory hurdles, I think that we are looking at the final years of the team in Oakland here over the next few years. So, you know, I have bittersweet feelings having been a Warriors fan all my life and uh, watching the team fail a lot and then succeed at least a few times over in Oakland and getting to enjoy that crowd. And I think that the move over to San Francisco is really going to change the the nature uh, of the fan base and uh, the feeling of going to a Warriors game. Yeah, that'll be the, the most interesting thing to me about the new arena. I understand the, the move to San Francisco. I understand what that'll do for the franchise's value. Um, 
I know the Warriors brass feels like it'll also help them in free agency. I'm not really sure that's true. When visiting players come here to play at Oracle, they all stay in San Francisco. I think the the outside looking in, the, the players already view this as, as a San Francisco team. So I'm not sure moving over there will help that much with that. But certainly with the value of the franchise, having a new arena and, and being over there and getting those sponsorships. Uh, so I understand it. But, but my fear, if I'm a Warriors fan, is that you are going to change the the dynamic of, of the atmosphere, the fan base. There's still going to be a ton of loyal fans. The question is, will they be priced out? Will they be willing to go to this arena in San Francisco? Um, and are you just are you turning away from something that you already know is proven to, to be a great environment? As somebody who was born and raised in the Bay Area, the closest analog that I have is what happened with Candlestick. But the, And what what happened with Candlestick for people who, who aren't really from here or people who were is that, to me, what happened is you what you got this really group of diehard fans, but you had to... And you and the diff the other big difference is the filling of the arena. But when you had to change over to Pac Bell, the whole atmosphere changed, and it took a long time. And it actually took the team doing well to get it even close to what it was. And what's sad about it is that it's going to be different. And Oracle is something that's it's been legitimately special. It's one of the one of the things that I'm so happy I've been able to cover is that it's just it's an incredible atmosphere, and it's not. It's very different from the other place I've been. I've covered games in Madison Square Garden. I've covered games in L.A. And it's it's a different thing. And the, the feel is different. And that will not be the same. But from a financial perspective, it was a mandatory move. Because not only do you have the benefit of being there and the sponsorships, as, as Rusty brought up, you also have the benefit of them owning their own building and the fact that there is no mid-sized concert and event venue in San Francisco. And so... As a financial move, I was saying for years, actually, that somebody should just build a basketball arena in San Francisco for this, even before they had a team there. And so it, it makes total sense for that. But at the same point, the on the product is going to be very different. And that, that's disheartening because it's fine if the product is different if it wasn't good, but it's an incredible product right now. And so to see it go away is, is disheartening, but at the same time, it's the right, it's the move that had to be made. Yeah, if if I owned a chunk of the Warriors, I would make exactly the same choice that Lakeup and the other owners are making. But as a fan, it's a more difficult call. Yeah, and the players are just yelling in the background that they need the new arena because the locker room needs to be better. You know, the Oracle Arena, uh, they've had two renovations there since Lakeup and Goober have owned the team, um, and it's still not close to, to the standards in, in uh, some of the newer arenas around the league. And so I think that's what the, the players' argument would be, is that everybody wants to play in a new place with uh, – all the great facilities and um, I, I, having your own training facility in, in the arena uh, will be a lot better, a lot, a lot better for the, the players. I, I think they will like this as well. And then it's up to them to win, to play a style that, that builds a, a different fan base over there. You, you have to start lobbying, Rusty, to get the fancy media suite built in the new arena so you have a good place to write. Yeah, yeah, we're getting moved up higher and higher everywhere. So uh, my <laughs> argument would be to to be like you know fifty percent of the arenas where we get to sit courtside. But uh, I don't I don't see that happening with the Warriors, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm a little bit concerned it'll be like when they have the All Star Game somewhere and they'll just have everybody in the back corner somewhere and just say you can write from here. But yeah, it's going to be interesting. Also, Rusty brings up a good point with the training stuff being in house because one of the other factors with the Warriors is while the visiting teams often practice in San Francisco, I think they always do, the Warriors 
practice facilities in Oakland. So when we talk about the distinction of them as a San Francisco versus an, versus an East Bay team, at present, their day-to-day lives are almost entirely East Bay, and when it happens, that will shift overnight. Yeah, and that's been an interesting thing to watch with the Warriors players because when they first made the announcement that, that they wanted to have an arena in San Francisco, a lot of the players were moving there. Stephen Curry had a place there. I think David Lee was the first. But a bunch of the guys lived over there. And now they've all started to go back over to the East Bay except for Lee. And so it's interesting to see, will they will they all switch back over to, to be San Francisco guys just to make uh, travel a little easier for themselves? Yeah. Uh, are there Are there any other topics you guys want to hit? No, I think it's going to be an exciting season. It's going to be a new season next year uh, with Kerr around and with new assistant coaches coming in. It will be very interesting to see how it compares and contrasts with what we've witnessed for the last two years. Yeah, I don't have much else uh, either. I think you did a really, really thorough job and hit on everything. And I'm really interested. I'm, I'm kind of in a, in a wait and see mode right now. I feel like this is the off season where I have the, the least answers that I've ever had before. Just because you have to wait and see what, what Steve Kerr wants on his roster and what he wants to do with them. But I'm excited to see what he decides. Yeah, and here's here's hoping we get something to give us some insight into it without giving us all the answers because I. I think that would be a really fun way for this to go is that, you know, summer league or some sort of transaction to be like, okay, this is this is how the team is going to be different. But then going into next season with the excitement of legitimate uncertainty, I think would be really interesting for a team that we know is going to be good, but we don't know how good. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah, thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Rusty and Adam for coming on. You can read Rusty in the San Francisco Chronicle, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rusty underscore sf cron that's r-u-s-t-y underscore s-f-c-h-r-o-n and you can read adam wardson at the fast break blog which is part of the san jose mercury news and you can follow him on at gsw fast break gsw f-a-s-t-b-r-e-a-k blast having them on the warriors have a really interesting offseason especially with the decision to fire mark jackson and hire steve kerr and with the potential of a kevin love deal So we'll have more of the Eliminated coming up, and I'm really excited to see how the NBA Finals turn out. By the time you listen to this, they might already be over. I have a few more episodes of the Eliminated that are coming up in the next couple days and weeks, and really excited to do those, and we'll hopefully get into some good draft and free agency coverage. I'm working on guests for all of those things at the same time, and it should be really fun. Hoping to do some stuff with Vegas Summer League as well. Should be a good summer at the Real GM Radio Podcast. If you have any comments, questions, anything, and be appreciated, you can send them to me on Twitter at Danny Leroux, that's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email them to daniel.leroux at realgm.com. Either way, I will read it, I will check it, and I will do my best to respond. It is a big part of what has made the show what it is and what will continue to make it better. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even a 